The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And all God's people said, Pray with me. God, your people need to hear from you. I'm asking you to help me to get out of the way. I'm asking you to guard my mouth my mind and my heart in these moments. Father, would you have me say everything that you once said and nothing you don't? Your people wait to hear from you. So we ask you to speak through your word now. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So this is going to be a very, very different week. It's perhaps a, a bit fitting as we come towards the end of our studies of Mark's gospel as we prepare. I, I believe God is leading us into uh, the epistle to the Ephesians next, and that's going to be a very, very different style of preaching. That's what, what letters require. And so as I looked at, looked at this morning's text and spent much time in prayer this week as to how I, God would have me to, to bring it before you, it seems to me that the best use of our time is this. We will stand and we will read the text. And then I will spend about 80% of our time this morning taking you to Hebrews 12 and the text we just read in Matthew 5 and trying to show you what you're supposed to see in Mark 15. And then I'm going to bring you back to Mark 15 and we'll spend a very short period of time there working briskly through it line by line as is our normal pattern. So I do ask that you would be in prayer for me this morning. This is a very different style of, of sermon, very different train of thought for us. But my hope is that you will be blessed, that you will be as blessed during our time together as I was by my time in preparing this word. So I ask you to go ahead and stand to your feet. We continue our verse-by-verse -verse study of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of God. 
and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him, that is Jesus, in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, the King of the Jews. They were striking his head, and striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of a purple cloak, the purple cloak, put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And all God's people said, Amen. Maybe see it. Father God, would you give us eyes to see what is here? Would you give us ears to hear it rightly? Would you give us hearts to believe it? Then would you work in us to walk in obedience and joy based on what we find here? Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So identifying true followers of Jesus Christ can be very very tricky business and Jesus told us that this was going to be the case Jesus promised us that until the very end of the age at the visible church that is the local gathering of those who claim the name of Christ that it will always be made up of true spiritual believers and fleshly pretenders tares sown among the wheat that's what Jesus called it now these false believers they won't always know that they're false as a matter of fact more often than not They'll have no clue whatever, whatsoever, but there are churches, thousands of churches just like this one, filled with thousands of people claiming the name of Jesus Christ, having no clue that they're absolutely lost. They have all the outward appearance of Christianity. They show up in corporate worship. They read their Bibles. They're faithful in marriage and in business. All the external markings of a Christian, they bear it, and yet they've never actually gotten around to giving their hearts to Jesus Christ. They've never come to truly repent of their sin, and they have never thrown the full weight of everything that they have upon him. And because of this, they have never known true satisfaction. They have never found the joy that comes in placing all of our hope and all of our treasure and all of our aim on God. Completely unbeknownst to these men and women, they are lost. Now this thought, this realization, this promise from Jesus that there will be many at the end of this life who exit thinking that surely they will enter into the kingdom of God, only to find themselves face to, face to face with the one they once called Lord and to be told, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. This thought should drive any thinking man to terror. But you see, I know all too well just how easy it is to be deceived. I know all too well how easy it is to assume Jesus surely can't be speaking about me. I know just how strong the whispers from the enemy are. When you hear these words and you begin to feel some sense of conviction, the enemy gets in your ears and he whispers to you, just go back to sleep. Everything's fine. You're safe. You're safe. Don't listen to what that mean man has to tell you. So because of this, knowing how easily deception comes, some months back, I asked you the question. I said to you, church, what if Jesus actually meant the things that he said? What if there really will be very, a great number of surprised souls on that day of judgment? A great number of people who believe that they are Christians, who have walked an aisle, who have said a prayer, who have done everything they believe they need to do to gain access to the kingdom of God, only to find out that their religion was false. Only to find out that their souls are lost. 
What if the gate really is narrow? What if the way really is hard that leads to eternal life? What if there really will be few who find it? What if you really can't be a follower of Jesus Christ unless you renounce absolutely everything that you have? Dear friends, what if Jesus Christ actually meant the things that he said? Because if he did, then we would be absolute fools. Do it not at least stop and pause every once in a while to take these moments to pause and ask ourselves, are we really his? Are we truly his? Or are we paying games? Are we playing church? Only a fool would abandon this opportunity for sober-minded self-examination. Now what I have found, both in scripture and in life, that perhaps the most telling thing about a man perhaps the most assuring way that you can find out whether or not your faith is sincere, whether or not all your hope is in Jesus Christ, whether or not you are truly a new creation with new affections, whether you have come to the place that scripture calls us to where Jesus Christ is your everything and all the rest of this world can be counted as dung, that perhaps the ultimate test and the greatest revealer of this truth is the way that we suffer. How do you endure suffering we reflect back we think back to those lowest moments in our life we think back to what our life looks like when the good things of this life get taken away and dear friends that's all suffering is we've turned it into something that it's not all suffering is is the loss of good things the loss of things that you cherish the loss of things that you want whether that's your wealth whether that's your health whether that's a relationship, whether that's your comfort or your peace or your joy, that is all that suffering is. And as those things are stripped away, as you suffer, your response to that loss says everything about your hope. Everything about where your assurance lies. I said to you some weeks back, if you're seeking assurance of your salvation, if you're seeking to know whether you're or not you truly belong to Jesus Christ, don't point me to your highlight reel of moments of worship. Don't point me to your greatest hits of Christian service. Show me your deepest, deepest and your darkest days. Show me how you walked then. And one of Jesus' parables, he was explaining it back in Mark 4. Jesus was explaining one of his parables to his disciples. Giving them a parable that is appeared to be about farming talked about a man sowing seeds and he talked about different kinds of dirt he talked about how there was one type of soil that was so hardened it was so trampled down by the course of this world so hardened by sin and by just the traffic of life it would not receive the word of God at all it would bounce right off of it it would bring about no reaction no response whatsoever but there was three other types of soil and each of these types of soil these types of dirt they would receive the word with great gladness. Each of them would immediately show some signs of spiritual life, but only one of them would endure. These, these soils, they represent the hearts of men. He talked about how there's only one type of heart, only one type of heart that's been so cultivated by God, so prepared by God that it will receive the word of God and not only show signs of life, but that that life will endure to the end. It will bear fruit, much good fruit. But then these other two types of soil, what of them? These others that received the word of God, they exulted with great gladness and, and joy at what they had heard. They showed signs of spiritual life. Well, one of them, they've been so, in, this man has been so in love with the, 
the things of this world, the love of riches, the cares of everyday life, that eventually, whatever goodness sprouts up, it will be choked out. It will be dragged away. And then the third type, it's a shallow soil. It's a soil that has no depth to it. So because of this, whenever affliction comes, whenever persecution comes, whenever the hot sun of this world beats down upon this soil, any life that once was there, it will wither, it will fade, and it will die. So the question before each of us in this room, the question that we must ask ourselves is, how do we determine which type of soil we are? How do we know whether this life that we think we see, how do we know that this fruit that we are bearing, how do we know that it's real, and how do we know that it will endure? How do we know that it's actually grounded in Jesus Christ? How do we know that our roots are actually going deep, deep into the earth, deep into our heart of faith? How do we know what type of soil we are? And dear friends, I submit to you again that I believe the most universal test is the test of suffering. Because there is not a man that escapes this world without suffering. In this life, you will have troubles. Isn't that what he said? Not every man is going to be in love with the riches of this world. Not every man is going to be tempted in the same areas. But every single man will have troubles. And it's in those troubles that we find out just what kind of heart do we have. Do we wither away? That's what Jesus says. If whatever spiritual life you have, it withers away at the sight of troubles. It withers away in the face of persecution. It withers away and it dies when things get hard. Then you prove that you do not have nor have you ever had any depth of soil. There is no root to this spiritual life that you believe you have seen. It isn't that the pressure was too much because all three types of soil were under the same type of pressure. They had the same types of conditions. It wasn't that the word had, fa had failed because it was the same seed that was sown. It was simply that the state of this soil, the state of this heart was simply too shallow. Dear children, there is nothing that reveals the state of your heart more than the way you suffer. This is not a meritorious thing. Your suffering is not the source of life. Your suffering is not the, the thing that produces the fruit. It is the revealer. At times, yes, it is the refiner. It is the means by which God comes to trim away the things that do not belong so that you can bear even more fruit, so that you can bear much fruit for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, you also need to hear me that I am not claiming that there is not a man that can walk through suffering and still be deceived. It can and it does happen. You can walk through suffering and still lack all the assurance that God intends for you to have. You can walk through suffering and still be completely deceived as to who you are. I'm also not saying that there's no other way that God can reveal your heart. He does it in other ways. But again, I find that this, more than anything else I know, in my own life, in the lives of others, in the lives of the Old Testament saints, what I see is that the way that they suffered revealed whether or not they had true saving faith. It helps us. It's truly a gift from God. Helps us to know where we stand by him. It helps us as we gather in this place. Listen, we charge hard after the, after the glory of God. We seek to put the glory of God on full display in this place, in the reading of his word, in the singing of his word, in the prayer of his word, in the constant looking upon the face of his son, Jesus Christ. We charge hard after the glory of God. How can you know that that glory is going to refine you into the image of his son and not consume you once and for all? How can you know that at the end of this life, when you stand face to face with this 
ferociously holy God that he will not destroy you. It's in the suffering. It's in the way that you walk through pain. It's in the way that you let go of the good things in this life, and yet you still find yourself delighting in him. That's the way. So the purpose behind this, why do we speak about this this morning? Am I just calling time out in the middle of Mark to remind you, hey, you need to examine yourself? Because, dear friends, you can't overdo this. I've warned you of this before. I've known many men that walk around constantly like a little parakeet or a canary or, or some little housebird, constantly staring at themselves in the mirror. They're so consumed with the image of their self. They're always grading every last moment of their life. They're always asking, did I do this right? Did I have the right thoughts at this moment? Were my motivations right? They get so consumed with evaluating themselves that they drive themselves right off of a cliff. So there is such thing as overdoing this. I've warned you of this. That's why we must allow God to be big and us to be small. We don't allow ourselves to become the center of the universe. We look to him and we continue to look to him. We look back to the message from last week and realizing that our hope, that the assurance that we have, it's in the fact that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God laid down his life for us, that he died in our stead, that that should have been us upon that cross. It's not in our own works. It's not in our own merits. So why am I talking about this now? Why this call to self-reflection? Dear friends, it's because for the last seven weeks, we have watched Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, suffer, and he has suffered well. We have watched the way he has had every last earthly comfort stripped from him. We have watched as he has been abandoned by every last friend he has had on this earth. Think of all the suffering that we have watched Jesus Christ endure on his way to the crucifixion. And dear friends, we had not even made it to the cross yet. And think about all the pain. Think about all the strikes to the face. Think about the pulling out of the hair from his, from his beard. Think about all the blows that he has taken, the scourging his flesh was torn from his back. And then more than that, think of the shame. Think of the shame of being betrayed by one of your 12 closest followers. Think of the shame of having all of your followers abandon you and run. Think about the shame of being accused and spit upon, lied about, being called a blasphemer, being dragged in for trial after trial after trial before sinful men and not ever uttering a single word, keeping your mouth shut only to open your mouth to acknowledge that, yes, I am the Christ. I am the son of the most high God, and someday you shall see me coming in glory. But to all the rest of the accusations, for all the rest of the lies, to sit there in silence. Imagine the shame. Dear friends, if the way that a man walks through suffering tells you about the condition of his heart, if the way that a man endures his trials tells you about his relationship with God, then we see yet again in this man, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, we see that there has never been anyone more madly in love with God than him. And we have never seen anyone who the love of God fell more strongly upon than him. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, then we turn Jesus into nothing more than a moral example. You've heard those sermons. If I'm not careful, very quickly, this sermon can turn into look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. Look at the way he suffers. Look at the way that he endures. Look at the way he takes all the pain and all the humiliation. Why won't you people just be more like Jesus? That's an easy sermon to preach. Frankly, it's a pretty easy sermon to listen to. You've sat through many of them, so have I. But dear friends, there is perhaps nothing less useful for me to say to you in our time than this. Not because there's no value in looking at Jesus Christ. 
The author of Hebrews tells us that, that as we endure, as we run this race that is a marathon, we're to look to Jesus. We run while looking to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So yes, dear friends, we do look to Jesus. For those who have been given eyes of faith, for everyone else, they look to Jesus and they do just see a man. But for those who have been given eyes of faith, for those of us that are a new creation, we can see through eyes of faith who Jesus Christ is, what he endured on our behalf. Yes, we look to Jesus, but what are you supposed to see there? Is this just a man? Even the God-man? Even the perfect Christ? Are we just seeing a man that's bearing down and enduring pain and shame and, and suffering? Is that all that it is that we're seeing here? Because if so, what help is that to us? Because I have to imagine that every single one of you, just like me, you've spent much of your life trying to abide by the maxim, what would Jesus do? How'd that work out for you? Look, I know what Jesus would do. I know what he has done, and I know what he would do. But I don't have it in me to do it too. Because the way of Jesus Christ hurts, and I'm not stupid. Everything in me tells me to pull back from pain. Everything in me says that path is going to cost you everything. And I'm not a fool. And I'm not a glutton for punishment. And so yes, I know what Jesus would do, but I don't want to do it. With everything in me, I don't want to do it. So is it all that helpful to look at Jesus and say, just be more like Jesus? Is it all that helpful to show, show your big brother Jesus and say, why don't you live up to his expectations? Why don't you follow his example? Why are you people the way that you are? Is that going to leave you changed? Is that going to leave you encouraged as you leave this place and get punched in the mouth one more time by the world that waits for you out there? So instead of that, instead of relying on religious platitudes, instead of turning this sermon into just a be more like Jesus, I believe that the question before us is this. In what way does God enable us to endure? Not just how are we intended to walk through suffering. In what way does God work in us as a new creation, as those who have been transformed and are being transformed in the image of his, of his son, how is God working in me right now to ensure that I suffer well? How is he working in me right now to make sure that I don't wither away when the persecution comes? What help, what hope, what work is God doing in me right now that I can suffer like Christ? So looking back to that text that I referenced earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn there. I need you to hold me accountable here. It's a text that's familiar to most of you, I'm sure. Hebrews chapter 12. We refer to these words often, frankly, over the last month and a half. But I think that what we see here really is fundamental to what God is calling us to do and to rightly looking at what we see here in Mark chapter 15, what we see Jesus doing. I think we have some insight here as to what's actually playing out. I probably should have turned there when I told you all to turn there. It's a Bible battle. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're being called to do something here, church. Do you see it? We're being called to run with endurance. We're being, called not, we're being called not to pull up short. We're being called to keep going. And that's really the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. The whole theme of the book of Hebrews is come all the way to Jesus. Don't turn back. Don't pull up short. He's greater than anything that's back there behind you. So keep going. Keep going to Jesus. And what we see as we come to chapter 11 is we see this, this it's called the hall of faith. We're told about all these great Old Testament saints and everything that they endured. Everything that they pressed forward through, everything that they went through for the sake of the kingdom of God. We're told about Abel and Abraham and Rahab and Moses. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish believers is he's saying, don't look back to them and think, why can't I just be more like them? Don't look back to them and say, well, they had the law and they had the sacrifices and they had the ordinance. And so surely that's my hope. Surely if I go back and I do those things, then I will be like these great men. He says to them, no, they looked forward to something greater. That's what he says in chapter 11. He ends chapter 11 by saying this. Though all of these were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. In the middle of chapter 11, it says that they died not receiving that for which they had hoped for, that which they had looked forward to. What the author of Hebrews is explaining to these Jewish believers is Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Rahab and all the rest, they saw through the ordinances, they saw through the laws, they saw through the sacrifices, and they saw through to something greater, namely the thing that has come today, Jesus Christ. He was saying if you want to be like these men, you don't turn back to the law, you too keep looking forward. He says this thing that they had longed for, it has come in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus Christ. All that they had hoped for, all these things that these shadows and signs and copies had pointed forward to, it has come in Jesus Christ. And now as men that are living on the backside of this, don't turn back to the old ways. You continue to press on. You continue to endure. You continue to press forward knowing that you too have promises yet to come. Knowing that the greater things for you are yet still ahead. That while these men, they greeted this thing from afar. This thing that they would not realize until the consummation of the kingdom of God, that you too look forward to a greater promise in the return of Jesus Christ. That's the whole message of what he's saying here. He's telling these people that the nature of saving faith is looking forward to the promises of God and living like they're here today. It's hearing the promises of God and having them become so real to you in this moment that you can live as if they were right there by your side right there in your hands. Dear friends, that's the difference between saving faith and empty intellectual faith. It's realizing them now. It's running with them in your hand. So he's saying to these people, that's the picture. Live today like the promises have already come, but don't turn back. But then he tells the people, he tells the people that we're to look to Jesus Christ because if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we're right back in the same place that we once were. We're right back to looking at Jesus as our example. We're right back to looking at these people as our example and saying, well, why can't you be more like Moses? Why can't you be more like Abraham? Why can't you just carry out these works that they carried out? Why can't you just be more trusting in God? But in all of this, we get to chapter 12, and he says, therefore. Therefore, pointing back to all of that, pointing back to all that we've seen in these witnesses of old, pointing back to the realization that Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled what they longed for, Pointing back to the reality that we too wait for a greater promise. Therefore, because of this, run with endurance. Press on. Finish your race. Don't pull up short. And he says that we do this by getting rid of every weight. Shedding everything that does not belong. The question that we must ask at every moment is, does this thing make me a better runner? 
talking about good things, talking about bad things. We're talking about great things. We're talking about lesser things. We're shedding every weight. If you want to be a runner, you got to be light. And you get rid of anything that might weigh you down. You get rid of anything that might trip you up. You renounce it. You throw it overboard. You're done with it. And then he says to shed any sin that clings to us tightly. These, the sins of this world, they wrap themselves around us like, like weeds in a, in a rose bush. They wrap themselves up and they pretend like they belong. And he's saying, no, these things will trip you up as well. These things will cause you to stop short. These things will hinder your sight so that you cannot see the ultimate promises. And so you've got to kill these things too. You've got to get rid of these things too because you will not run fast. You will not finish your race. You will not endure to the end if you've got the weights. You've got the weight of this world and you've got the weight of sin that are clinging to you. And so you must run light and you must run hard and you must run with purpose. And again, all of this is good and all of this is true, but again, we could be just right back where we were. Okay, but I don't know how to do that. Frankly, I don't want to do that. I spend most of my life running the wrong direction on the track with 100-pound ankle weights because I think the weights look cool. Or because Satan has lined the weights with rabbit fur and they're starting to get comfortable. Because I'm getting used to running slow and losing. But he doesn't stop there. Again, he says, look to Jesus. That we're a people who run while looking to Jesus. Stop trusting in our own abilities. Not only our own abilities to run, but our own abilities to get rid of the weights. Our own abilities to recognize what is a weight. Our own ability to shed the sin that clings to us. That we look to Jesus Christ. That he's more than just our ultimate example. He's more than just the pace setter. That he is the author and perfecter of our faith. That our faith is found in him. Number one, that he's the object of our faith. That our hope, that the prize waiting at the end of the finish line for us is him. That he is our ultimate trophy. He is our ultimate reward. It's eternal life with him. It's unending pleasures in his presence. That he's the hope. He's the prize. He's the reward. But in addition to this, that he's the one that secured the victory. That in his finishing of the race, he has won the victory and assured that you too shall be victorious. He's ensured that you're not going to pull up too short. He's ensured that you are going to run fast and hard and with a great purpose. And so you keep your eyes fixed on him because he is in every real way the object of your faith, the finisher of your faith, and the giver of your faith. That the very faith that you have, the ability to even get up and want to run, it comes from him. It's a working of God through Jesus Christ in our life that even makes us want to get out of bed and run, that even makes us see him as a prize, makes him see us as our, as our goal, makes us recognize the stuff that's clinging to us, that Jesus Christ is the trophy. Jesus Christ is the one that gives us the desire to run. Jesus Christ is the one that causes us to run. Jesus Christ is the one that shows us how to run. Jesus Christ is the one that guarantees that we're victorious. The whole thing is about him. We're saying we look to Jesus Christ, that we run with endurance, that we run with faith, that we run with purpose. And dear friends, we could stop there. That would be a fine sermon, would it not? Do you not feel blessed? Are you not impressed? It's a fine sermon, nothing wrong with that. Frankly, there's some of you that might need to get up out of this place and run and meditate on that for three years. You've been running this race in your own power and your own ability and it's not going so well. Or perhaps you're just laying on the side of the road hoping somebody's going to come drag you along. I would be in no way wrong to bid you people to go in peace having told you to run with purpose. 
run with a desire for endurance. Run recognizing that this race will be hard and that it, there will be great suffering, but that if you will keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, you will not fail. You will not lose. You will endure to the very end, and the prize will be yours. But the author of Hebrews didn't stop there. He says something else. He says something that I think fits in with what we're seeing in the life of Jesus Christ here in Mark 15 and frankly fits in with who we are as a church who I believe God has been leading us towards over these last three years when I first came as your pastor people would ask me questions like what is your vision for the church and I'd say I I don't know does it matter I don't see anywhere in scripture that it says a good pastor has to have a vision statement frankly God's not all that impressed by what thoughts my little pea brain comes up with in the first place but dear friends I tell you with absolute assurance that I have figured out what God's plan for his church is and it is found in this because he goes on to say for the joy set before him now there's a lot of really smart people out there I'm not very good in Greek I'm working hard at it guys I need you to know for your sake I'm working hard to learn Greek I want to be able to explain to you what the original language says. I don't want to rely on the commentaries of other men. I want to be able to show you what the original word said because I believe that you deserve to hear what God's word says. But there's been a whole lot smarter than me that they will tell you that this word, this word for, this word anti in Greek, it can also mean in place of, like anti-inflammatory. What is that? That's a drug that's meant to get rid of inflammation. what, What the author of Hebrews is actually saying here is that Jesus Christ ran that he endured, that he finished his race, that he suffered the cross in place of, instead of joy. That's what some people argue. And for years I've sat under teaching that sounded an awful lot like that. The race is hard. Marathons are hard or everybody would run them. The race is hard and there will be suffering, but look to Jesus because Jesus ran his race. Jesus sucked it up. Jesus endured. Jesus took all the suffering and all the pain and he ran it unselfishly to the glory of God. Instead of joy, in the place of joy, without a thought in the world for joy, he sacrificed joy so that he could endure to the glory of God. This is the way you're supposed to live. This is what Christian life is meant to look like. Quit being so selfish and worrying about joy. Quit being so selfish and worrying about pleasures. Quit being so selfish and worrying about yourself being satisfied and just suffer already, won't you? That's what love demands. That's what God calls you for. So why won't you just do it? Endure your cross, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow him and quit worrying about joy. That's what children do. Real Christian men, they bow up and they suffer. So be a man and walk. Be a man and take up your cross. It's what God wants and God's the boss. In not so many words, how many sermons have you said under that sounded like that? That the whole of Christian life is all about giving up what you want to do and doing what you're supposed to do. I've tried to live like that. I've spent much of my life believing that all of Christianity is a whole lot like my mommy telling me to eat my vegetables. Yeah, it sucks, but it's good for you. Excuse me, I don't know if I'm supposed to say sucks. But maybe if I can smother it in enough salt, maybe if I can bury it under enough cheese sauce, 
Maybe I can just get it down. That's why we see churches filled with nothing but emotion, enough laser lights and emotion, enough funny stories mixed in with a little bit of Jesus. I can get you to choke down your vegetables, and guess what? Then eventually you'll die, and then you get to go to heaven. Now, frankly, if you've not been born again, if you're not a new creation with new affections and new desires, you don't find Jesus Christ as your ultimate joy, that is the Christian life. The Christian life is nothing but a bunch of fleshly people walking around trying to pretend like they like spiritual stuff. Talk about frustrating. Talk about damaging to the church. Yeah, dear friends, I'll tell you, I lived right there. For more years than not, I lived right there. Walking around pretending like I like these spiritual things because that's what Christians do. But then I looked around me and not everybody lived like that. Not, not everybody walked like that. Were they just better than me? Did they just master the, the art of loving gross stuff? Because my mom told me that if I ate enough broccoli, eventually I'd come to like it. Well, I've eaten a whole lot of this stuff and I still don't like it. So if these people just developed a palate that I don't have, is that, is that all that Jesus has done? Has Jesus just learned to quit thinking about joy, to quit worrying about pleasure, to quit having any thoughts of satisfaction and just embrace suffering? But dear friends, when you come to the point that you recognize that four here means four, you look back to Hebrews 10 and you recognize that he's, he's applauding these people. He's celebrating these people because they suffered for the sake of joy for the sake of rejoicing, for the sake of what was best for them, they suffered and they endured. That's the whole point of Hebrews. It's not come to Jesus, you owe it to God. It's come to Jesus because he's best. It's come to Jesus because he's in your best interest. It's coming to Jesus because there is nothing more self-serving you could do than to come all the way to Jesus Christ. That even in the, the embracing of suffering, you're doing what is best for you. That that's the purpose. And so you see here, if that be true, then when he says, for the joy, that we see that Jesus wasn't just enduring suffering in spite of joy, he endured it for his joy. What we see in Jesus Christ is not a man choking down his veggies. It is the most delightful, the most pleased, the man who knew joy more than anyone else who ever lived because he pursued after that and counted everything else as dung. And that's where the light bulb has gone off for me. Over all these years, if I sat under the teaching of great men, and I don't ever like praising men before they're dead because they can make a mess of their life before they get there. So John Piper better not make a mess of things because that's the dude that opened my eyes to this. He stole this stuff from Jonathan Edwards, so I don't feel bad stealing it from him. This is not a new thought. I believe it's thousands of years old. But dear friends, once you see it, you can't see anything else. It's like somebody's let you out of jail. You start to recognize that charging hard after the glory of God, enduring suffering to the glory of God, doing good for your neighbor to the glory of God, it's ultimately in your best interest. It's all about chasing after joy. And so no longer do I have to feel ashamed or bashful or embarrassed or sinful as I run after joy, as I demand satisfaction, as I charge hard after that which I want most. And no longer do I have to feel worried when God calls me to put his glory at the center of the universe just as he has. Because I realize that those two things go hand in hand straight to the heavens. 
There is no other way to truly please him than to reveal to the world, I find my satisfaction in Christ. Is there anything greater you could say about a man than that? Than to look to the world and say, he's worth more than anything you can take from me. What brings God more glory than this? I will endure the pain, I will endure the suffering, I will run with endurance because he's worth more. What greater thing can I do for my neighbor than to to display that before you? To draw you in, to call you to enjoy me, to join me in enjoying God and finding pleasures in God. Church, I'm firmly convicted that that is his plan. That is his plan for you, that is his plan for me, that is his plan for us. That the God of the universe will glorify himself through us by bringing us to delight in him. As he gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh, as he gives you new eyes, eyes of faith, you will see and you will treasure and you will delight in him. And therein he will be glorified. What a deal. So these words for the joy again I say Jesus was not abandoning joy he was pursuing after it he was charging hard in his humanity he endured the shame and the violence and the suffering and his father's wrath punishment and pain in ways you and I cannot imagine and all of this leading towards his ultimate joy I believe that this is what the angel came and said to him in the garden of Gethsemane you remember that Jesus was there and he was crying out to the father and he says father if we can do any other thing other than this I sign up for that I don't want to endure the pain I don't want to drink down your wrath. And the angel came, and that was a private conversation, and we're not told exactly what he said, but I promise you what he didn't say is this, hey, this too shall pass. It's not gonna be that bad. Dear friends, it was that bad. It didn't pass until death. That might be right where some of you are sitting today. I would be lying to you if I told you you were just in a season of suffering. It may be a season. It may be the whole season of your life. And I can't promise you it's only going to get better from here because it may get a whole lot worse. I believe that what the angel said to Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane is he said, your father has not revoked his promises. You will be exalted. In the resurrection, he will prove to the world that you are who you say you are and that you have won the victory that you say you came to win as you ascend to his right hand and he places you in a position of power, at, power and authority at his right hand, the whole world shall know that you are his beloved son. Jesus, you chase hard after joy. You tra- chase hard after the only thing that will bring you true satisfaction. You chase hard after your own exaltation in your father. And that's what he did. That's what we were witnessing. In this, the God of the universe was glorified and his son's obedience, and his son drinking down his wrath and the salvation of sinners. In this, the son was exalted as he was resurrected and raised to the right hand of his father. And in this, we are saved. Again, I say, what a deal. There's perhaps nothing less selfish in the whole universe than chasing after your joy. There's nothing more self-serving. There's nothing that leads to greater joy in your life than chasing after Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that spills off on those around you than chasing after your joy of Jesus Christ. Nobody loses. The problem is we've stopped short and we settle for a bunch of stuff, a bunch of trinkets, 
a bunch of gifts along the way. We've allowed the enemy to convince us that sex and drugs and rock and roll are gonna satisfy us and we don't go all the way to Jesus. And nobody wins in that. So that's the picture that we see here. Jesus Christ rejoicing in his suffering because of this. We see this call in our life to glorify him as we rejoice in our suffering. But I need to show you one more thing. I love you guys. You're not normal. You are so good to chase these rabbits with me. I got one more rabbit to chase. Because I want to look to Matthew 5. Because, again, if we're not careful, if we're not, if we're not careful, we can see this trade and we know that it's the best trade possible. We know that it's the best trade imaginable. The things of this earth for eternal joy. Suffering today and joy in heaven. And that's true. And that's right. And that's good and a good. Again, that may carry you all the way to the end of this life. But then if we're not careful, we're right back in the same spot. Hey, life's hard, but I get to go to heaven when I die. Someday there will be joy. But that's not what I see in Scripture. Is that what you see? I see men rejoicing in the suffering all throughout the New Testament. Not just someday we'll get to the joy part. Even now I can rejoice in the suffering. So David read to us earlier from the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are reviled. When, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Jesus seems to be saying that there is a kind of suffering that does not lead to blessedness. There is a kind of suffering that does not lead to joy in this life or in the next. The world does it every day. Nobody gets to opt out of suffering. It's a part of the deal. That there is a way to suffer that you gain nothing from it. Suffer in your own power. Suffer in your own ability. Suffer in ways that care nothing about the glory of God. But then there is another type of suffering. You see, this, this suffering that's carried out by those that have a heart for the gospel, by those that see the glory of God as their ultimate purpose, by those who have been born again, it's those who will suffer on account of Christ. That's what he says. Those who suffer on my account, that those are the ones who will be blessed. And we refer often to Paul's words in Romans 8, 17, where he says that those who suffer with Christ, they will be brought into glory with Christ. And what does it even mean to suffer with Christ? Does this mean like only when you suffer because you won't renounce his name? Does it mean that, that, the, that the bad guys come in, they put you against a wall, they put a gun to your head, and they say, you either denounce the name of Jesus Christ and say you're no longer a Christian, or then you're going to die. Or they throw you in prison until you renounce the name of Jesus Christ. Is that the only way that you can suffer with Christ? Because if so, most of us in, in this room have never done it. Most of us in this room never will do it. But I want you to see the way he ties together two thoughts there. Right there in Matthew 5, he, he ties together suffering with him 
being reviled and persecuted and lied against on his account. And in the parallel verse, right beneath it, he says that there's a way that we suffer for righteousness' sake. It seems to me that those two things go together. That in, in a very real respect, those are the same things. That suffering for the name of Jesus Christ, and what do we think about when we think about suffering on Jesus' sake? Again, it's someone saying, if you don't deny Jesus, if you don't abandon Jesus, this suffering will continue and you may well die. It seems to me that suffering for righteousness' sake is the very same thing. It's saying, you're going to suffer if you don't abandon righteousness. You're going to suffer if you don't let loose of what righteousness demands. That there's a type of suffering in this world that we come up against it and we know there's a path around this suffering. There's a way to avoid this suffering, but righteousness won't get me there. Honesty and truth and love won't get me there. So my choices are, I cling to righteousness like I cling to Christ and I walk through the suffering, or I let go of righteousness like I let go of Christ and I go around the suffering. Seems to me that that's the picture. And so will there be times, I believe in my children's life? Certainly. I think the Chinese communists are coming if the American communists don't get there first. But they're going to demand our children renounce the name of Jesus Christ or die. But for most of us, it's going to look a whole lot more subtle. It's going to look like giving up the right to be offended. It's going to look like refusing to get even, even when you know that that person's going to try you again. It looks like praying for your enemies and blessing those who curse you. It looks like showering your spouse with undeserved love when knowing that there's not a soul in the world that would count you as a bad guy for divorcing her today. It looks like walking through the fires of raising your children, saying, I will do this the way that the word calls me to do it, and I will not follow the path of this world, even if this means that my suffering does not end. It means that I will be so dead set on pouring the righteous gospel of Jesus Christ into the hearts and minds of my children that if it means for 18 years this is a dogfight, then that's what I do. It means telling the truth when you know that a simple lie would not ever be noticed. It means refusing to use the world's language because you know that the world's language is not true. Dear friends, we're going to come up against that very soon. When the world is demand that we start using their kinds of language, calling boys girls and girls boys. And many other such things. And we could play their little word games all day long and we could avoid the suffering. But dear friends, that's not what righteousness and love and the gospel demands. And so instead of avoiding the suffering, instead of abandoning righteousness, we march forward. I think that's the picture of enduring. That's the picture of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, for suffering for the sake of righteousness. And so Jesus says, blessed are you when this happens. Blessed are you when you are falsely accused. Blessed are you when you suffer. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Blessed are you when you are accused. Blessed are you when you are thrown in jail. Blessed are you when CPS comes and threatens to take away your children when you suffer for the sake of righteousness. But even beyond this, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Christian, it is possible for you to rejoice even in the middle of suffering. It is possible for you to have real joy unshakable joy, true rejoicing and praise in the middle of suffering like you never thought you could endure right here, right now. And he says that the basis for this is the fact that we have a great reward in heaven. 
The Apostle Paul seems to talk about this in his first chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. He talks about God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then in chapter 2, he goes on to talk about the fact that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have already been raised with him and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's a gift there. There's a reward there. There's an inheritance there in heaven. This great treasure. And it says, you're already there and you've already got it. Because your salvation was never in doubt. Your endurance was never in doubt. Your finishing the race was never in doubt because Jesus Christ was the victor and he won. So in a very real way, that treasure is already yours. In a very real way, you've already taken hold of that treasure. And so in a very real way, you can enjoy that treasure right now just as if it was right next to you. Do you understand? It all comes back to this. Living like people that have already received a reward that we haven't yet seen. Living like a people that have already received a treasure that we know is off in the distance. That's the picture. And Paul's not... Paul's not just preaching, he's doing it. Go back to Acts 16, what do we see? Really the history of all the early church. They're in jail, they've been arrested, him and Silas. They've been beaten, they've been arrested, they're in jail, and what are they doing? They're singing songs of praise. They're rejoicing, they're delighting, they're raising a hallelujah. Thank you God that you've seen fit to allow us to suffer like this. We already know that our treasure is secure. It's imperishable. It won't waste away. No one can snatch it from your hands. So you took this other junk that we didn't need in the first place, even our freedom. Thank you. Thank you that you've brought us to this place, Father. We rejoice. We delight. We find true joy in the middle of this suffering because we see what they don't see. Dear friends, don't you understand? It's not just that true believers, it's not just that Jesus Christ can run in a way that you can't run. He sees things you don't see, but he's trying to show them to you. He's bringing them before your eyes, and he's saying, if you saw this, you would run like I ran. You begin to see, this isn't some kind of maniac. This isn't some kind of glutton for punishment. This isn't some man with a maniacal laugh, like I'm just a a glutton for punishment. No, no, they're trading up. They're trading up. You know why they laugh? You know why they sing? Because they won. Dear friends, we can be here. We can be here. I'm telling you, this isn't churchy platitudes. This isn't pastor talk. You can find joy in suffering. Look to Jesus Christ and don't just see an example. Don't just see the author of our faith. Ask, what does he see that I don't see? And you pray to God, God, give me eyes to see it. Give me a heart to believe it as if it was in my hand right now. Okay, very quickly. No, we're not doing it. We're not going to do it. He deserves more than that. We're going we're gonna to come back next week, and we're going to talk about this. I pray that you don't feel ripped off that we have not walked through any of Mark's gospel today. It was not my, was not my intention. Dear friends, I pray your heart is prepared. Pray your heart is prepared for what we see in Jesus Christ and in his suffering. I pray that as we sing songs of praise to him, I pray that as we study his word, I pray that as we walk towards the cross with him, I pray that your heart's deepest desire is that you can suffer like him, that you can endure like him, and that you can find true joy in whatever suffering waits for you in that world when you walk out those doors. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for these promises. We thank you for the gift of faith by which we can hold fast to them. 
Father, I, I'm, I'm praying for these people now that, um, that they, that I, that we would stop settling for the trinkets of this world. We would stop settling for the gifts. We would stop settling for the stuff. It would come all the way to the giver. Father, we know that once we have tasted and we have seen, everything else will get real dim real quick. So help us to savor Christ. Help us to feast on Christ. Help us to see him as he is. And to truly be satisfied. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.